talk of stars burning above If you're in love, show me Tell me no dreams filled with desire If you're on fire, show me Here we are together in the middle of the night Don't talk of spring, just hold me tight Anyone who's ever been in love will tell you that This is no time for a chat Haven't your lips longed for my touch? Don't say how much, show me, show me Don't talk of love lasting through time Make me no undying vow Show me, come on, show me Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios This week on Broadway for Sunday, October 22nd, 2023 My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Jenna Tessa Fox and Michael Portantier Jenna has written about theater for many publications, including Playbill, Broadway World, Time Out, and HowlRound. She's a member of the League of Professional Theater Women and the Drama Desk, and is a contributor to Broadway Radio. Hello, Jenna. Hello, James. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm concerned. Did you get your membership sorted out with the League of Professional Theater Women? You know, to be determined. (laughs) I need to follow up on that. Well, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting uh, me. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. And Michael, before we started recording, you were telling us you have a new puppy that you're fostering. So, yes, her uh, name is her name is Lulu. Lulu. So any, any great musical theater uh, characters named Lulu? I can't. Think well, no, it. but there's that song, and actually, I posted Lulu's back in town. But then I said, well, I don't think that's really accurate because I think it's her first time in town. <laughs> ah, I see. No, she's doing very well. She's adapting to the city very well. It seems. So uh, Peter is not here this week, and he'll be out next week as well. But we will have trivia, so stay tuned for that. He's in Virginia for performances of a show he has written called Larry, the Big Time Producer, Broadway Producer. <laughs> uh, and that's happening at the Hope Theater in Warrington, Virginia. If you are in the Virginia area or want to travel to the Virginia area, there's a link in the show notes to the production. And uh, let us know if you get down there and let Peter know if you get down there. So first up, we have uh, Jenna and Michael have gotten over to the James Earl Jones Theater to see Gutenberg, the musical, which uh, has a little bit of a history here in New York City. So, uh, Michael, why don't you get us started on Gutenberg the Musical? Yeah, it does have a history, but I was not a part of it, so um, Jenna can fill us in uh, when she speaks about it. Uh, I went in cold um, to the show, which had previously been seen off-Broadway, and it's a lot of fun. (laughs) Gutenberg the Musical... um, Book, music, and lyrics by Scott Brown and Anthony King, uh, starring Josh Gad and Andrew Rannells uh, as the only two people in it, basically. Um, and it's uh, one of those meta musicals uh, 
that exists to simultaneously make fun of the musical theater form and also celebrate it. Um, and I think it does a, a, a very good job of that overall. Um, interestingly, my reaction, and again, I went in cold, never had seen it before. Um, so I didn't know what anyone else had said about it or how anyone else felt about it. And my feeling was, um, a, as it was over, I thought that the um, the parts of the show, well, the setup is that uh, th these two have decided that they wanted to write a, a musical uh, and they, you know, this was their dream. And then um, one of them, their uncle died in a hang gliding accident and mm -hmm. so um, left them all this money that they decided to spend on producing uh, a show for a one night presentation on Broadway. And um, some of the funniest lines in this um, production seem to have been written, especially for this production. There, there are some references at the beginning to the, the James Earl Jones theater and, and other really current events like that. Um, but uh, yeah, it seemed to me that the, the, all of the, jokes in like the framing device when they're explaining the show to us and making little comments uh, between numbers. All of that was very, very, very clever and funny. But the actual musical, <laughs> the actual songs of the musical are, are just kind of silly and lame. Um, and uh, wouldn't you know, I, I after I saw the show, I, I went and read Jesse Green's uh, review in the New York Times, and he said exactly the same thing um while they're doing the songs from the show within the show uh in in my case i really just couldn't wait for them to end <laughs> uh and to get on to uh you know the more of the jokes and the and little funny parody comments in the framing device uh i mean there's some exceptions to that there were maybe one or two songs in the musical that were clever and uh uh, and conversely, maybe some of the jokes in the framing device didn't work, but that was my general feeling about it. Um, so I, uh, you know, I, I guess it was easier to write this show um, than it would be to write a serious musical. And I, I think that's why we've seen so many of these in recent years. Um, uh, one, well, one prime example is, uh, <laughs> What's the title? <laughs> the one about Hamlet, Omelet. Uh, like a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern? Oh, oh, or? oh, something rotten. Something rotten. Yes. Oh, rotten. Oh. That's one example. And of course, uh, I mean, you you know, you can even go back to You're in Town and probably before that. Um, there are s so many of these uh, uh, sort of parody musicals, sort of parody, uh, parodying the form anyway. Um, but that's what I felt here. So so you uh, you uh, don't want to do this show unless you have two amazing people um, to play the roles of Bud and Doug. Those are the names of the two guys who take it on themselves to become Broadway musical theater writers and performers uh, because they didn't have enough money uh, <laughs> after they paid for the theater, et cetera, et cetera. They didn't have enough money left to hire a cast. So they themselves are performing everything, uh, if I didn't make that clear. Um, so fortunately here we have Josh Gad and Andrew Rannells who are reunited from the Book of Mormon 
and also uh, since then have gone on to uh, have great success in their own separate careers. Um, Josh Gad, uh, among other things, most notably as uh, the voice of the snowman in Frozen uh, and Andrew Rannells in lots of TV and, and other stuff. Uh, I know he was in the movie of the prom, the TV movie of the prom. Um, so uh, it's a really great, I mean, uh, I can see why someone obviously, I wonder who specifically had the idea. I don't know if they've spoken about that um, uh, to reunite the two of them in this show, which is perfect for both of them. Um and I, I'm, I'm sure we can assume that one major reason it's on Broadway is to fill the theater. We, we, we currently have a situation where um, a lot of theaters didn't have a, other bookings. And um, this probably wouldn't be on Broadway if it wasn't for that. Same with the Melissa Etheridge show, as we mentioned. Um, but it's not unwelcome. Um, certainly not by me. I really enjoyed it. I, I was surprised. Um, very surprised, and so was the the friend that I went with. That there was an intermission, I did mm. not expect that. <laughs> and frankly, it's not necessary. But um, uh, well, it is probably necessary, as we realized, if only to give the two actors a break, because they're just you know, it's just the two of them. Then they're, they're nonstop on stage. The energy required for this is incredible. Mm. Um, so that's probably one reason why they had an intermission um even though it wasn't necessary in terms of the running length or uh in other ways um very well directed by alex timbers and i um i would uh highly recommend it with the with the uh couple of provisos that i mentioned okay uh jenna how about you yeah uh i i agree i also thoroughly enjoyed gutenberg Das musical sort of feels like <laughs> uh that should be the title uh yeah and i did get to see it way way back in the day over at uh 59 east 59th street and this was such a long time ago i can't say i have a super clear memory of what it was like back then i just remember when the character of helvetica was introduced i was howling uh, with <laughs> laughter i thought that was Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, Browning, uh, Scott Brown and Anthony King, uh, from what I've read, first premiered the piece at Upright Citizens Brigade, where they were yeah, members of the comedy team. And it was a 45-minute one-act. And since then, it's been expanded to a two-hour, two-act show. Um, it, I really think the show is a wonderful idea for a 45-minute sketch, but hmm. ultimately, it really is one joke. And that joke tends to get kind of thin after two hours. And, you know, maybe that is the show's biggest challenge. It's very funny. I laughed an awful lot, but I kind of wish the script were tighter so the jokes didn't feel so forced by the 90-minute mark. I mean, like you, Michael, it, it I don't think it needs that intermission. And I mm -hmm. understand why the actors would need a break. I understand why the theater owners would want the concession stand to sell right uh, that too yeah <laughs> during the break but yeah it uh by the 90 minute mark it was starting to feel like okay uh this is this has been going on a while but you know what i think the show and uh alex timber's direction in particular really gets right is 
getting us to care about the two guys on the stage. I mean, they are misguided. They are clueless. They're not terribly talented when it comes to writing a musical. But (laughs) I think what is really key here is that they're not that egotistic. And it is so easy to cheer them on. And by the end of the evening, even by that 90-minute mark when I'm beginning to tap my feet a little bit, we want them to succeed. And I think that's what raises the show above sketch-level comedy. There's a lot of talk about dreams throughout the show. And that kind of becomes its theme and its backbone. And it was kind of funny to see Gutenberg and Merrily we roll along in the same week. And to catch some similar themes uh, in between the two shows. Hmm. Uh, I agree that Josh Gad and Andrew Reynolds, they have phenomenal chemistry together again. And they keep ringing laughs even when the premise begins to wear a little thin. They do a lot to make the characters really likable uh, despite their naivete despite the deliberately bad acting they do as they play all of the characters in again the deliberately bad musical that these characters have supposedly written Uh, it's a really hard feat to pull off um and yeah i agree with you michael their energy is just off the charts Mm. Uh, i can't imagine how much caffeine they're drinking backstage (laughs) to keep that up but they do a beautiful job with it. They are so funny, but they're also really poignant uh, when they have some more emotional moments together. It's just really lovely to have them back on stage together again. Um, Scott Pask's set, I sort of am hesitant to say too much. Mm. The set is so clever in several ways, but I also feel like saying too much about why it's clever would spoil uh, some really fun moments. So just trust me that it's clever. And uh, Marco Paguia's music design for the small band, which is just himself, Amanda Morton, and Mike Dobson, really evokes the sound of a lot of other types of scores for some mi- nice uh, musical nods. So y- you mentioned, Michael, the uh, the pastiche uh, of some other shows. I caught that in that music design. So cheers to, uh, to Paguia. You know, it's really lovely to have this thoughtful, uh, you know, to have a, a thoughtful, poignant musical about ambitions and dreams like Merrily back on Broadway. But you know, it's also really great to have this little musical comedy that's also ultimately about ambition and dreams uh, on Broadway as well. The show has its flaws, but I spent most of the show laughing. I thoroughly enjoyed myself and after the past few weeks, a fun musical comedy was just so needed. So I, I really enjoyed the show, and I really hope it does well. And, and what you said about the set, uh, I, I hope this isn't, this isn't really a spoiler, but uh, there's something that happens in the last, like, two minutes mm-hmm. <laughs> that, uh, as someone else said in one of the reviews, that it, it must have added tremendous amounts of money mm-hmm. to the budget and so um it's so unexpected that it's really quite effective yes. and i i thought well you know i really gave them credit for that <laughs> absolutely it's sort of like when mike Berbiglia did uh his broadway yeah. sh- his first broadway show <laughs> oh, and they, yes. they did the uh they did the, the drop, toy drop. Of the toy drop <laughs> which you know is hysterical for like a you know five second bit that totally added cost but it was wonderful 
<laughs> it was <laughs> really so so funny. I did Love think of that. Yes. Yeah. And and uh, do you remember the Nathan Lane revival of uh, Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum? Oh right, the opening scene, and the tragedy the opening scene, tomorrow. Yeah, the tragedy yeah. comedy tonight. You know? Yeah, <laughs> that was like uh, that's a you know five second sight gag that had to have cost them a small fortune, but it it really was. <laughs> one, I mean, here we are, how many years later, talking about it? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. So funny. Nathan. Oh, so <laughs> all right. So that's uh, Gutenberg exclamation point the musical exclamation point at the james earl jones theater it's uh playing through january 28th 2024 we'll have a link to that in the show notes uh talking about musical comedies and tapping your foot in a good old time jenna got to see merrily we roll along right oh yes is that, is that a comedy that's yeah well depends on how you look at it <laughs> so the hottest ticket on Broadway right now at the Hudson Theater. Uh, oh, yes. So, Jenna, how did you uh, find this production? Oh, how did I find it? Well, I walked onto 44th Street. <laughs> okay. And I turned mm-hmm. the corner, and yeah, there it was. It's really but, odd um, to go on that side of 7th Avenue, is Right? Oh, there's a joke about that in Gutenberg as well. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it only took 40 years, but Merrily We Roll Along is finally the Broadway hit it always should have been. Uh, we can thank Maria Friedman's direction for that. She seems to have cracked the code on how to make one of Broadway history's most frustratingly challenging musicals work. Uh and, you know, I'd say she's made it work by pure force of will, because even <laughs> with all the extensive rewrites over all the decades, the uh, Stephen Sondheim, George Firth show does still have a lot of structural problems. I mean, uh, how do you make an inherently unlikable character sympathetic, especially when the audience knows for mo- the most part how many people he is going to hurt by the end? And mm-hmm. how do you make the story of an artist selling out feel tragic when his talent is only an informed attribute and we barely get any sense of what he's <laughs> capable of accomplishing. Uh, like Peter said last week, I've also seen a number of productions of Merrily. I did not sadly get to see the original production. Really wish I had. Uh, I couldn't begin to tell you what pieces from what versions have been pulled together for this one. What I did notice in this production that I don't remember seeing in others is a real emphasis on the choices each character makes from scene to scene that will have serious repercussions down the line. And since the show, as I think everyone listening knows, is told in reverse order, the audience knows what the consequences of those choices uh, will be. Um in several moments, Friedman has the characters pause before they say or do something that will change their lives. And the energy in the moment changes noticeably during that pause. It's a really effective way of building tension and getting the audience invested in each character's emotional arc from scene to scene, even when we know what's going to happen. Uh, it, it's like watching a horror movie and wanting to yell, don't go in there. <laughs> we know mm. where, where <laughs> that's going to lead. Um, Friedman also emphasizes Franklin Shepard, the play's prota- musical's protagonist, as something between a. I'm trying. I keep trying to find the right words, and the two I keep coming up with are cipher and sociopath. 
<laughs> uh, Jonathan Groff plays Franklin Shepard with this cool detachment that seems perfectly reasonable in the beginning of the show when Frank is a 40-year-old Hollywood producer, but it becomes increasingly chilling as the story goes back in time and we see that he was always this calm, manipulative machine, for lack of a better word. When he talks about how much he loves music and what the art means to him, it sounds like a lie, and it really may be. Uh, in Friedman and Groff's hands, music is a rung on Frank's ladder to success. And I don't want to suggest that Groff doesn't give Frank any humanity at all, especially during uh, – old the old friends number he seems to be having a wonderful time with people that he truly cares about but it's a humanity that can be put aside when another opportunity presents itself um and you know that take on the character i think changes the tragedy of the piece in the 1934 play and all previous versions of the musical that i've seen over the years the tragedy is Frank's growing disillusionment and his willingness to sacrifice talent for easy money. In this production, the tragedy isn't Frank's; it's the people's around it's the people around him who care about him and who get cast aside when he no longer needs them. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe and Lindsay Mendez give Charlie and Mary all the warmth that Frank lacks, and. They make their characters' pain and frustration really heartbreaking to see. Radcliffe is just so kinetic. He's nearly explosive as Charlie. He's leaping around the stage. He writhes in his chair during Franklin Shepard, Inc. <laughs> and when he stands still to sing Good Thing Going late in the show, it's a really powerful moment because it seems like the first time we've seen him standing still all evening. Uh, he really does a lot to make the character funny and poignant as his frustrations mount. I really hope the show gets him the Tony nomination he has so richly deserved for so many years, if not the award itself. Um, reading up on the original piece, uh, apparently the original character in the 1934 play, uh, sorry, I should backtrack, the Mary Flynn character, was originally based on Dorothy Parker. Mm -hmm. um, in George Berth's hands for the musical, she became yet another woman whose entire identity is wrapped up around a man's attention. <laughs> uh, Lindsay Mendez manages to rise above those limitations to give Mary Flynn a really smart wit that makes her obsession with Frank a lot more painful to see. You know, Mary is meant to be, as we hear, she's an accomplished author in her own right. Mendez makes it really easy to see what Mary might have been if she could untie herself from this toxic man. And I really agree with you know what Peter said last week that rather than uh, Frank's loss of idealism being the show's tragic theme, it's Mary's loss of idealism that hurts the most to see. Uh, Mendes just does a beautiful job at capturing the character's humor and then her tragedy to, uh, early in the show, rather late in the story. Uh, Katie Rose Clark and Crystal Joy Brown uh, also have their characters wrapped up with Frank as his first and his second wives, respectively. Brown gets the meteor material as Gussie, 
I've seen a lot of interpretations of Gussie over the years that can present her as this manipulative uh, bitch or a genuinely supportive and encouraging partner who simply wants to encourage greatness. Uh, Brown finds a nice middle ground. She, her Gussie, she creates a Gussie that is both calculating and caring at the same time. And that's a really tricky tightrope to walk. Uh, When she opens up to Frank late in the show, but early in the story, it really doesn't feel manipulative. She seems to seriously be trying to connect with him artist to artist and person to person. It's a lovely little moment that humanizes her and lets us sympathize with the pain she know we know she's going to be in once Frank decides he no longer needs her. Um, if Gussie is complex and nuanced, Frank's first wife, Beth, is not. Uh, she's presented as this tragic pushover who gets discarded fairly early on, but Clark gives the character some spunk and some brains. Uh, her joy during It's a Hit is just electric and so much fun to see. Uh, I will complain, though, she makes Not a Day Goes By into a rather cartoonish depiction of grief, which I think kind of weakens the moment overall. Mm. Um, Sutra Gilmore's set, I've heard a lot of complaints about it. Uh, it's bland and it's lifeless. And normally that would be an insult, but it really works. It works perfectly to depict uh, Frank as it, it depicts his emptiness and it also just works uh, logistically very well for all the different locations of the show. So for all the haters who have been complaining that it's uh, tacky and bland, yeah, that's the point. And that really reflects Frank's and Frank's descent. Um, Amit Chandra Chakar's, Chandra Chakar's lighting and Kai Harada's sound design also do a really great job of emphasizing the subtler moments as well as the loud up-tempo, energetic scenes. And Jonathan Tunick has new orchestrations for this production. Uh, it's a, what, 13-piece band. Uh, kind of sad that I get really excited to see, wow, 13 musicians. It's <laughs> wonderful. But, you know, take what we can get. Uh, he puts every instrument in that 13-piece band to really good use. Uh, and music director Joel Frem makes them really sound wonderful, and they do great justice to Sondheim's score. Um, it's just, it's wonderful to have the show back for a new generation and to see it finally get the respect, uh, that it's always deserved and to see it be the hit it always could have and should have been. For the record, I I guess I'm one of the quote unquote haters about the set, but, um, but, uh, as I said, when I saw the show off Broadway, I think the reason I feel that way is for me, um, it's important to get the feeling uh, of obviously, first of all, the passage of time and also uh, that all the various scenes take place in very different situations. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that's the specific reason for me why this basically unit set um, did not work at all. Uh, so for, for whatever no, that's, that's a fair worth. criticism. Yeah. Um, and you're, I, I, I enjoyed your comment about uh, Mary Flint. So you're saying she doesn't pass the Bechdel test. I was actually wondering about that. I'm fairly <laughs> sure the show does not pass the Bechdel <laughs> test at all. I, times- yeah, I, I would 
I think you are right. And it's funny, I never really focused on that before, but that's also partly because I think this production, one thing it does is that it maybe makes more of the unrequited love of mm-hmm. Mary for Frank uh, than some others I have seen. Um, so okay. maybe that's why. Uh, um, Jenny, you said you did not see the original. Well, I have news for you. Um, the first thing is not news, actually. The, I, I think uh, there has been a video of the original production complete on YouTube for quite some time. But um, I don't know if this is newly posted or just I just found out about it. Someone posted an audio uh, with photos, with copious production photos of the second preview of the original Broadway production on October 9th, 1981. And it's absolutely fascinating to listen to it and see um, many people who uh, I only saw the original once uh, right after it opened and shortly before it closed. Um, But people who saw it multiple times said it really did get a lot better in previews. And I can see why they said that. It is so interesting. First of all, James Weissenbach, is in this performance as Frank because this is before he was fired and replaced oh, by Jim Walton. All right. Uh, but also I'm, I'm listening to it and I'm so fascinated. The opening graduation speech uh, delivered in this case by James Weissenbach rather than, uh, than Jim Walton uh, is very different and much, much longer than the one that, wound up in the show and is preserved on the original cast album. Uh, The entire opening sequence of Rich and Happy is far, far longer, maybe four times as long. Uh, There's an extra song in there that was cut uh, called Darling for Gussie. Um, Other changes, Charlie, rather than Mary, sings the intro to Like It Was. The Hey Old Friend, What Do You Say? Yes, yes, yes. Um, Now You Know that that number is three times as long <laughs> um and it's all dance music uh the the extra stuff so i think that was a good cut i i listened um to much of it and then i uh it it seemed to me it took forever for the show to actually get started um there was all that extra material in the beginning that i alluded to and i i checked the timings of the two recordings uh you know the preview and then the the uh the, the the show after it opened and in the uh original franklin shepherd inc does not start until 46 minutes into the show as compared to uh 35 minutes after the opening now 11 minutes may not sound like so much but that's kind of an eternity on stage mm. so it is interesting to listen uh, and i i now i see uh, what people were saying, and I absolutely agree with them based on these these recordings, that the show really did get a lot better in previews. And, you know, maybe if those were the days when they had workshops, uh, maybe um, if they had done that route um, or an out-of-town production, maybe it would have been a hit the first time. Maybe they would have figured out the other stuff. But... Um, it's fascinating, fascinating. To well, I know to. what I'm watching this afternoon. Yeah, I'll send the <laughs> link. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay, so that is uh, Merrily We Roll Along at the Hudson Theater. Right now it's scheduled for running through March 24th, 2024. 
Uh, still, uh, I've mentioned it in the last few weeks, but uh, I'm still seeing a lots of outrage about the ticket prices. Mm. They're extraordinarily mm-hmm. expensive ticket prices through through the box office. Five to is it eight hundred dollar top ticket? Or- yeah, that's what I heard. Oh, and here's um, a word to the wise. Uh, someone wrote on uh, Facebook or wherever complaining that they were in the first or second row and um, they couldn't see, uh, among other things, uh, I hope this is in this part, there's a key moment where Frank collapses to the floor and they couldn't see it. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and I wrote back and said, well, you know, that is a problem. Uh, in a lot of Broadway theaters nowadays, ever since they eliminated the orchestra pit, because uh, the yeah. yes, because they filled that in with seats to make more money. But the but in many cases, you're looking up. You have to put your neck back, and um, and you can't see the the feet and sometimes even the whole lower legs <laughs> of the cast because the you know it's cut off by the lip of the stage um and some you know obviously in some some shows it's uh, more of an issue than others and also in some theaters it's more of an issue than others but i think that's a general problem uh and that's why sometimes uh when theaters have rush tickets sometimes they're the f- first row first and second row uh, hmm. because they recognize it as uh, really sort of partial view, even though I don't think they're billed that way. <laughs> and I've so, heard that the lottery tickets for this production are partial view, although I don't know where those seats are. Oh yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah that's, it's kind of a crummy thing to do. And it really is. Yeah. Yeah. Not kind of, it just flat out is a crummy thing yeah. to do. That's what happens when uh, it's so so ironic with, um, you know, considering how it went the first time with that show. Uh, um, Lonnie Price and Jim Walton uh, ha- have said that uh, I- I'll never forget. I went to that 20th anniversary uh, oh. reunion concert of Merrily with the entire original cast, um, except for, I think, Sally Klein, uh, who who played uh, Beth. Beth is right. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that was, you know, by that time already, uh, people had come to love the show from the cast album, of course. And it, you know, had become such a legend. And it was people were cheering and, and there were standing ovations after number every number. And and uh, the applause would not end at, at, at the end. And afterwards, I I saw uh Jim somewhere and he said you he said you have to understand you know we're, we're used to doing this show and seeing people walk out <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know it was such a disaster um, uh, originally and now it's it's almost like you can't describe it um, what it must have felt like for them to oh. then do it 20 years later and have it treated as a, a beloved classic Um because the score, you know, as I said, as I said last week, the score, I think, um, is so good that it mm-hmm. really covers up a lot of flaws in the construction of the narrative. So yeah, you, ta- that at all. Uh, you talked about um, uh, <laughs> merrily not really passing the Bechtel test, but <laughs> I, I, I wonder, uh, have you heard of anybody really trying to 
role reverse merrily? Uh, do it with two women and a man, or just an all woman cast? Or not yet, not yet. <laughs> so I wonder. Uh, Tony Janicki in our chat room points out that Jason Alexander stated that if uh, Merrily had an out of town tryout, it would have closed before making it to Broadway. Oh, uh, right. well, that's wow. a different and, uh, perspective. Yeah, and uh, I, I, you know. And Alan Teasley also says that he was warned against seeing dancing from the first half of the orchestra because you couldn't see the dancers' feet. Mm-hmm. And it, definitely, if you're going to go to a, uh, a a show about you know really focusing on choreography, you want to see that. So front mez is probably the best seat for dancing. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Michael, you uh, said before we started to record that Vanity Fair had a little. Uh, a uh, video with Daniel Radcliffe, Jonathan Groff, and Lindsay Mendez. Oh, it's absolutely hilarious. They they give them a lie detector test. <laughs> uh, one after the other. They uh, let's see. I think um I think Daniel goes first and then Lindsay and then Jonathan and uh, I mean I won't spoil it. Uh, I'll just give you one teaser. They they ask Jonathan. Oh, oh, so it's the three of them in the room and then this one fellow who's at the you know at the lie detector and taking the readings and telling reporting whether the answers are true or false <laughs> you know whether they're telling the <laughs> truth or lying and so at one point the question is um uh oh and the other two ask the questions of the the, the person who's being who's in the hot seat and so lindsay or daniel uh, s- says to jonathan uh was there a tony award uh that you uh thought you should have won and jonathan says no uh and the guy says he's lying (laughs) but then jonathan so they so of course they all crack up but then jonathan clarifies he says well he said no he says i i think the people who won deserve to win but i would have liked to win a tony so Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of, they, they really, really do seem to enjoy and love each other very much. And I think that goes a tremendous way towards, uh, helping this production to be as successful as it is. I, as I, I've gone on the record, I do not like the direction as much as everyone else does, but I think, um, that the casting is quite brilliant and i i think that plus the score uh and some other you know production elements really have uh but then also just the fact that as time goes by the show seems to become more and more beloved um regardless of what version you know you see it in uh, i mean there was even that uh, that minimalist uh, very small cast version that was done right. Uh, fiasco. By the, yes, fiasco. Fiasco yes, theater. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, even mm-hmm. that was. Uh, I remember that was very well received. Yeah, um, and I feel I, I personally have seen the show many times, many different productions, uh, which for a you know a flop um, is kind of amazing. All right, so that's merrily. Uh, as I said, it's running through March twenty fourth, which um, I expect. It would be extended if possible. I, maybe it's a scheduling thing with the with, with the three leads um, schedules, but it may but depend we'll largely what on what happens with the uh, with the SAG strike. Uh, yeah, don't you think that's true? Yeah, yeah, but I sort of feel like that's starting to come to 
uh, should be coming to an end soon. I hope so. If, if Hollywood wants to have any summer blockbusters, it needs to yeah. end soon. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> uh, to to get out the summer movies, uh, they need to start, you know, shooting them now. All right. So uh, next up, uh, we're going to talk about Patrick Page's All the Devils Are Here, how Shakespeare invented the villain down at the DR2. And Jenna, you got a yeah. chance to listen to the incredible voice of Patrick Page. Oh, yes. So, yes. So tell us uh, about this production down at the DR2. Yes, it's, it's you know, the perfect time of year for a good spooky play <laughs> and... Patrick Page's uh, one-man show is a really perfect spooky play. It's also uh, very smart, and it's funny, and it's a fascinating dive into psychology and theater history and into what makes villains so compelling as characters. Mm. Uh, the play looks at Shakespeare's villains in, for the most part, as far as I can tell, chronological order from uh, Aaron the Moor in Titus Andronicus and Richard III when he's still Duke of Gloucester and Henry VI to Macbeth and even Prospero in The Tempest. Uh, Page starts out performing monologues from these different characters as he discusses each of them. But by the play's end, this is not too much of a spoiler, he is performing full scenes all by himself, analyzing the characters and discussing their motivations and discussing the nature of evil. He addresses uh, the viewpoints of the time. He acknowledges the biases and prejudices of Shakespeare's world that are reflected in the plays. And he doesn't try to excuse them. We get all the racism and anti-Semitism and sexism that were completely acceptable in Elizabethan England. But Page also really emphasizes how Shakespeare made his villains human rather than stock caricatures that earlier and even contemporary playwrights created. Um, and what's really impressing is impressing impressive is how page never makes any of this sound pedantic or ponderous uh, it doesn't sound like a university lecture uh page knows how to make education entertaining the play is surprisingly funny even from the very beginning he loves these plays he cares about these characters and he wants the audience to care about them too the enthusiasm is contagious, and I really think that plays a big part in the show's effectiveness. He makes the audience want to love these plays and characters, too. And after 90 minutes, it's kind of hard not to. He's got the stage presence to command an audience with a word or even a raised eyebrow. And you know, with a text like Shakespeare and a small theater like the DR2 on 15th Street, we're with him from the get-go. Uh, Simon Godwin's direction is very sharp and very precise. It keeps the energy up. Arnulfo Maldonado's scenic design is sparse, but very effective using individual props and set pieces like just a table or a chair to very good effect. And it even incorporates Stacey DeRosier's uh, side lighting. Uh, DeRosier's lighting is also really excellent. It makes it very clear when Page is playing a character or speaking as himself, but it also sets the scene for each play as we watch the different excerpts. 
Uh, Darren West's sound design also does a lot to evoke different moods from moment to moment, from the brooding menace of Lady Macbeth's unsex me here monologue to the furious storm of the tempest. And uh, since Patrick Page has talked openly about his uh, difficulty hearing, I just want him to know that, yes, the sound design really is excellent. <laughs> um, Emily Reepholt's costumes also very nicely suggest the different characters with just a few pieces for Page to wear over his dark red shirt and pants. Uh, All the Devils Are Here really is a perfect play for the Halloween season and beyond, so... I hope theater fans will make a point of catching it during the run. And I also really hope it tours and I could see this being a wonderful piece at universities. Any school with a Shakespeare program would do so well to get the show in and hopefully have a talk back with Paige afterwards about creating the villain and how to make them compelling. Jenna, were you surprised that Prospero was included? I was. I would not have thought of Prospero as a villain, a traditional villain, but yeah. you know, he makes a compelling case for how Prospero fits in to the villain archetype. And then, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, and then, you know, switching it up. He redeems himself rather mm. than following through on his plan for vengeance. Yeah, I mean, I think that's entirely valid. So ultimately, he's not a villain, but. Uh, but I can see, yeah, I, I, I yeah, see I guess, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, but you. how many stories now do we have of villain redemption? And right, right. do we have that pre-Shakespeare? And how many of Shakespeare's other plays redeem the villains? Yeah, good question. I mean, I could, hmm. I could argue that to Shakespeare's audience at the time, Shylock is redeemed because he's forced to convert, and that will save his soul. Yeah, but <laughs> only to the I audience wonder. at the time. But, yeah. Well, that's it. And, yeah, you know, right. and Paige makes that very clear. He fully acknowledges the anti-Semitism that is you know, rampant, not just through Merchant of Venice, but through uh, other plays as well. And I wonder if that's meant to be you know, a preview of Prospero's redemption in that uh, to Shakespeare and to his audience – Shylock is saved by being forced into a conversion. And I'm sure we all saw the uh, uh, Delacorte production that had that horrible, horrifying baptism scene. Yes. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I remember holding my breath during that moment, just showing how horrifying that redemption would be for the character. And that also, of course, transferred to Broadway. Yes. Didn't get to see it indoors. I only saw it outdoors. Okay, so that is All the Devils Are Here, How Shakespeare Invented the Villain at the DR2. Um, so, And we'll have a link to that in the show notes if you should check it out. Uh, see if I can get in touch with Patrick. We'll have him on. T- it's Ooh. always great to hear him in the headphones. Yes. <laughs> can I come back when you do? Yes. <laughs> we will try to make that happen. Oh, thank you. You know, if, uh, you know, Jenna, you know, having Patrick in your headphones sounds like you're chasing happy, though. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, Michael, yeah. <laughs> so, Michael got down to Theater Row to see a production of Chasing Happy. So, tell us about this Pulse Theater production. 
Yeah, I'm afraid I had a very bad reaction to it overall. Uh, oh. I think I think um, the playwright maybe was going for absurdist comedy, a modern absurdist comedy, or maybe even a farce. But it didn't not work for me. The playwright, by the way, is uh, his first name is M I C H E L, so I suppose it's Michelle, or it could be just pronounced Michael. And last name is Wallerstein or Stein, which made me think of Jamie Wellerstein mm. from uh, <laughs> the last mm-hmm. the last five years. But uh, yeah, I I don't really like what he came up with here. This uh, play is billed as a, a love letter to Provincetown. Uh, where I've spent a lot of time. But uh, frankly, um, I thought it could have taken place anywhere. The action is so strange. And the characters, that it it didn't really matter where it was. Uh, The set is very nice, but it didn't remind me of any home that I've been in in Provincetown, except for a couple of paintings on the wall of fishing boats. Um, And there were a few references to... uh, some restaurants and other things up up there that I know, including the Red Inn. Uh, but I, uh, it did not seem to be redolent of Provincetown in any way. Okay, so the play opens. Um, we see the main room of this this home in Provincetown, and uh, at first it's an empty stage, and then this incredibly hot young guy comes out uh, of the bedroom in a speedo, nothing but a speedo. <laughs> And he's played by uh, an actor named Skylar Conaway. Uh, and it turns out uh, that he has just had sex with the owner of the house, who's named Nick, played by Spencer Ast, uh, and who is much older than him. And uh, we find this out when Nick joins Brad in the, in the main room. And it becomes clear that this was uh, really just a hookup, a sexual hookup that I guess started at the beach because uh as i said um uh, brad is in a speedo uh, but then the two of them start talking about whether this might turn into a relationship um which seems odd because the, the one is so much older than the other and it just doesn't seem like something that would lead to a, any kind of a lasting <laughs> relationship um and then we find out uh that brad already has a, another older boyfriend, uh, much older boyfriend, uh, because that person shows up on the scene, and his name is Rob, played by Christopher James Murray, and he's um, incensed uh, you know, that he's being cheated on, to say the least, and he comes across initially as an extremely unpleasant and violent character. Um, so uh, since both of these older men are obviously well off, we're thinking maybe that Nick is uh, um, that Brad, excuse me, is your quintessential boy toy. Uh, but it, it turns out we're we're led to believe that he's an aspiring artist and he's supposedly very very talented. But you certainly wouldn't know that from the one painting <laughs> of his that is displayed uh, in the play. Um, so that was weird. Uh, and this sets up anyway a triangle in which it's left to Brad to choose which guy he is going to to be with. And um we also learn uh that Nick's former partner who died when he was shot during a gay pride parade was supposedly a very talented writer um who published a bestseller, although you certainly wouldn't believe it was a bestseller from the passages of the book that Nick's keep that Nick's 
Nick keeps reading throughout the play. And those passages include all these affirmations um, that he makes the audience repeat because it's supposed to be um, it's done on a, like in a spotlight. It's, he's supposed to be giving a reading of this bestseller by his dead lover um, uh, at a bookstore in Provincetown. And we're supposed to be the audience. So he keeps saying these affirmations and then making the audience repeat them. But unfortunately, they're on the level of I'm serious. I mean, this is not an exact example, but it's like today is the first day of the rest of your life or, you know, um, you can't look for happiness. It'll find you things like that, you know? Uh, so that forced audience participation is always something that I always, always have hated. And I guess I'm not alone because, <laughs> uh, for this performance seated directly behind me was Rex Reed, uh, with a friend mm-hmm. of his. And the second or tr- third time that this, uh, thing happened where, uh, this character made us repeat the affirmations. I heard Rex say, Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I, I said, my friend and I laughed at that because we were in complete agreement. Um, So that's the setup of this play. Uh, But there are other characters, uh, two other characters, Nick's British ex-wife who uh, I guess was, from the time when he thought he was straight uh, or was not openly gay, uh, played by Jenny Bennett, and also Nick's mother, played by Antoinette Lavecchia, who takes an instant liking to Brad uh, for some reason, maybe because he's so hot. I don't know. Uh, And then she takes him under her wing and they go off traveling together and she's going to introduce him to people in the art world and hopefully uh, uh, help him have a career as an artist, even though he seems to have no talent whatsoever. And he also comes across as kind of a pretty smug little shit. Uh, But uh, nothing made any sense to me. It all seemed very, very schematic and all very "quote unquote" written. Uh, and I, uh, and as I say, if the play where I was going for absurdist comedy or farce, it did not work for me. I will say all the actors committed to it a hundred percent, and uh, the director also, Alexa Kelly, uh, directed them to play everything full out i i suppose it it wouldn't have made any sense to try to play these characters and all the crazy situations um to try to play them subtly i i don't suppose that would have worked at all so they just made the opposite decision and really went for it uh and so it is what it is uh but i just personally responded to the writing so 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 poorly that i did not consider it one of my finest recent evenings spent in the theater. Okay. So that is chasing happy at theater row. Michael did not catch happy there at this time, No, but it is playing through November 11th, 2023. Uh, And next up we have uh, Jenna got to the 28th street theater to see Anne being Frank. Uh, yes. which is uh, what a fan Frank had survived the Holocaust and did a complete rewrite of her famous diary. So uh, Jenna, what'd you think about this? Well, uh, yeah, it seems 
kind of bizarre to encourage people to go see a one-woman play about a child being murdered due to anti-Semitism right now. Yeah. Um, uh. But, you know, maybe it is the perfect time to see a new play about Anne Frank. Uh, Ron Alicia's new play is a, I can only describe it as a fever dream. I don't, I can't think of any other phrase for it. Uh, imagining Anne Frank on her deathbed, imagining not only what she would write in her diary about her experiences in Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen, but what her life after the war might have been like had she lived. Uh, the play also uh, really examines Frank's most famous quote that in spite of everything, she still believed people were really good at heart and then deconstructs it as people's capacity for cruelty slowly kills her and breaks mm. her spirit. I mean, this is not a lighthearted comedy. I, I This is one reason I needed to go see Gutenberg, I got to say. <laughs> uh, seeing this play, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's an important play. I mean, we'd be here all day if we analyzed all the ways Anne's words have been used to make people feel better about horrific atrocities. Uh, Alicia's vision of Anne becoming increasingly hopeless as her situation gets worse and worse is just a powerful reminder that a murdered teenager shouldn't be held up as a symbol of optimism when people are facing horrible oppression and violence uh, uh hannah pick goslar i had to look this up after i saw the show hannah pick goslar was a friend of anne frank's uh before the war and then they found each other in bergen belsen and were able to communicate there she said after the war much later that you know anne probably did not believe people were really good at heart by the end of her life uh, so <laughs> It's important to remember that. Um, Alexis Fishman uh, plays Anne, and her performance is very powerful, uh, but not flashy. She portrays multiple people in Anne's life, from her fellow residents in the secret annex to other people in the concentration camps to a New York publisher who encourages the imagined post-war Anne to make her diary more comfortable for American readers. Uh, she really gives each character a distinct voice and body language and makes their conversations very tense and unnerving as she plays both sides. And you know, Amanda Brooklerner's direction does a lot to help with that. It's very lean and effective. It makes very good use of the very small space. Um, yeah, really glad I got over to Emerging Artist Theater to catch the show, especially now as people are talking about war crimes and human rights violations and accusing each other of anti-Semitism in a way that in a number of cases, I would describe it as casual. They're really casually throwing that term around. It's it's important to remember what the end result of anti-Semitism can be and has been you know, not just 80 years ago, but over thousands of years, uh, seeing a teenage girl lose hope before she loses her life is really heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And even the imagined future in which people try to edit away unpleasant truths in favor of a more comforting fiction is really chilling, especially 
when news sources are accused of being propaganda and people are shouting fake news whenever they hear something they don't want to hear. Hmm. Watching uh, a fictional male editor try to edit the horror out of Anne's story is honestly one of the more frightening things I've seen on a stage in a while. Uh, The play is running for just one more week at Emerging Artists Theatre. I really hope more people get to see it. I can't say that it's fun, but it is very moving. It's really thought-provoking, and it can be the start of some very important conversations. And after this coming week when the run ends, I truly hope the show tours. And again, this is something I hope a lot of colleges will produce, or at least can visit college campuses. Uh, It's something that I hope will get people talking. You know, your comments made me think uh, that we were uh, remiss, uh, you know, incredibly anti-Semitism is acknowledged in Gutenberg, the musical. Oh, yes. And there were a couple of minutes, a couple of seconds there where I felt really uncomfortable. Now, of course, they don't make fun of it. Uh, They don't joke about it, but it's, it's brought up in the context of this you know, crazy comedy. Uh, and I thought, and also, I mean, it's, it's in, it is in Germany, not the Middle East, but well, it's still anti-Semitism, isn't it? Uh, it is. So that, how fascinating that, um, that that's even mentioned in Gutenberg, the musical. I really hmm. wonder what brought that into this. I, I can't remember if it was in uh, the earlier version I saw, all those many years ago, I wonder what uh, was behind the decision to incorporate that into this production. Oh, are you saying that you think it wasn't there before? Oh, I couldn't say one way or another. I just don't remember it that way. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, uh, don't get me wrong. It's just mentioned in passing, but it is mentioned. It is mentioned. And I yeah. wonder, you know, it's a re- reflection to, of the times or if it was just something they thought could get uh, an uncomfortable laugh i don't know yeah I, yeah interesting so that's and being frank at the 28th street theater uh it's playing as jenna mentioned through october 29th we'll have a link to that in the show notes uh so finally this morning uh hopefully going out on a happier note uh michael got over to 54 below to see scott siegel's 54 sings broadway's greatest hits uh the latest in the series that we've talked about so many times before so tell us about this one what was in this uh this version well this was indeed a much happier evening (laughs) oh good (laughs) yeah yeah and this was i believe the 119th uh presentation this particular series 54 sings broadway's greatest hits all uh produced created and hosted by scott siegel uh whose um music director pianist for some time now has been the brilliant ron abel and the highlight of this show uh many highlights but the highlight was michael winter uh performing i happen to like new york uh, music and lyrics by Cole Porter from the New Yorkers. And what was amazing about it is uh, I that song, a, a, as written, is uh, just kind of designed to be a showstopper in the way that it keeps building. Uh, and I think, um, I'm not sure about this, but I think that there are one or two modulations of key 
written into the song as written by Cole Porter. Uh, it modulates up at least once, maybe twice. Well, um, what Ron Abel and Michael Winter did was that in the last four, well, let's see, maybe the last eight measures, they modulated up about three or four times. <laughs> um, mm. And as he as he get, kept saying, I happen to like New York, I happen to like New York. <laughs> and, uh, uh, forgive me, I'm not feeling well today, so I, I can't do it. Um, but it was just electrifying to the audience, and he got a tremendous, uh, they, I should say, both of them got a tremendous ovation at the end of it. Um, so that was great. Uh, but other highlights... Uh, Michael also sang Autumn in New York, uh, another um, New York song from Thumbs Up, music and lyrics by Vernon Duke. And uh, the interesting thing there was that I had never, ever, ever heard the verse of that song sung before. I didn't even know there was one. Uh, mm. uh, and so it's always fun uh, to to discover something like that, you know, for a song that's so old and so well known. Um Great cast. Otherwise, uh, Ben Jones did I've Grown Accustomed to Her Face. Uh, and um, let's see. Uh, William Michaels sang both of his numbers unplugged, uh, which is not often done at 54 Below because it wasn't designed for that. But he made it sound like it was designed for that. <laughs> uh, nice. I mean, it, it was completely every single note and, and word was completely audible and filled the theater. Uh, so he sang "Where Thine That Special Face" and uh, they call the wind Mariah from "Paint mm. Your Wagon." Um, uh, this wonderful Sophie Rapaco did a really terrific version of "Popular" from "Wicked," and she sang it to Scott Siegel as, as, as if he was the person she was trying to help <laughs> become popular because i think that song doesn't really work unless you sing it to another character so they were smart to stage it that way um the great luke hawkins was there uh singing and dancing uh singing in the rain and um Anne stein sang easy to be hard from hair uh this woman named benny rose did mr snow from carousel speaking of uh Lindsay Mendez. <laughs> uh, Sophie Rapaco also did She Used to Be Mine uh, from Waitress, which is really such a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful song. Um, Luke came back to do Putting on the Ritz. Ryan Knowles sang uh, Unchained Melody, uh, which Scott, um, you know, I mean, the focus is always on actual show tunes, but he does include songs that eventually became honorary show tunes because <laughs> they were put into jukebox musicals or whatever. And in that case, Unchained Melody, which was originally written for a movie um, uh, from the 50s uh, that wasn't even a big hit, uh, eventually ended up in Ghost, the musical, because it was included in the film of Ghost. Uh, so that was uh, an honorary show tune that was sung. But then Ryan also sang I Rise Again from On the 20th Century, which, of course, is a complete bona fide show tune um, by uh, uh, Cy Coleman and Betty Comden and Adolph Green. And then um, uh, Ben Jones was in the cleanup spot with Being Alive from Company. So it was really, it was really a terrific night and packed, I'm happy to say, uh, another wonderful Saturday night at 54 Below. <laughs>
I have a prediction here that yes. uh, either Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday night, you're going to be back at 54 below. Oh, uh, let's oh, yeah. see. Oh, oh yes, for Maryland. Yeah, for Maryland. <laughs> for Maryland May. Yes, I that's really right. Maryland May is going to be at 54 below this week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Yeah, she October has. Um, 3rd, she usually. Yeah, sorry. She usually does runs, but in this case, she did. I think two last week, and then three this week, and then maybe two the following. She they're broken up for some reason. Uh, maybe it was scheduled later than than usual. But she's phenomenal, and she has been a guest on our podcast twice. Um, always a, a privilege to be in the audience for a Marilyn May show. Okay, so that wraps it up for this week. Before we get on to our brain teasers and our uh, musical moment, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts in many ways to get us. Uh, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash broadwayradio is a way in which you can get our broadcasts early before everybody else and support all the different uh, shows at broadwayradio.com. Uh, you can also listen to us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Pandora, uh, YouTube Music, uh, anywhere that you can listen to your finer podcast, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Jennifer, Michael, and for me can be found on the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, uh, Peter sent me the information for this week's brain teaser, which starts with the answer for last week. So last week's question was, what do Daniel Radcliffe and a musical that came in from London to Broadway in the last mm -hmm. half of the 20th century have in common? Uh, so the answer was... Little chap, right? Uh, it says, but it was Daniel Radcliffe who was Arthur Kipps in the film version of The Woman in Black. Arthur Kipps mm. is the same name as the lead character in the 1960s British musical Half a Sixpence. So, oh. uh, Tony, yeah, Tony Janicki was the first to get it, followed by Brigadoud, Fred Abramowitz, and Ingrid Gammerman. This week's question is, what do these musicals have in common? Dracula? The Boyfriend, Sister Act, The Drowsy Chaperone, Thoroughly Modern Millie, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, and Drat the Cat. <laughs> oh, I know that one. They all have songs. <laughs> yes. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broaderradio.com and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. This just it goes to preview that even though asking the question, I, I still have no answer here i have no idea right so. <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm positive uh, i'm right yeah all of them have songs this is all of them have vowels in them so yeah we you know we've been doing this since 2009 and I, i'm pretty sure i've never gotten one of these right uh mm -hmm. almost so. i've gotten one or two my track record is not that great yeah <laughs> so michael what do we have in uh this week's musical moment well, recently I reported on seeing Golden Rainbow um, at the York Theater, which was a really terrific production, and how beautifully Max von Essen sang in it. 
Uh, I think he's only really improved over the years uh and he was great to start with so i i really admire that that i i just think he's grown uh and improved and sounds better than ever um so i remembered that i have an album uh that he made a few years ago called call me old-fashioned and it's an album of broadway and standards uh and so i thought we would pick a selection of that for the opener and the song um it's a really eclectic program given the fact that you know that it's broadway and standards but it's show me from my, my fair lady uh which i always thought was a really genius song from that genius score uh the fact that the uh the writers learner and low that they thought well you know this is a place where we should give Li- eliza a song uh it's not an obvious place for a song uh but it's perfect because it shows her frustration, her incredible frustration at her situation that the audience has been seeing, uh, you know, built up all night. And so we really want to hear her express <laughs> how frustrated she is. And and it's done to, um, in the show, it's done to a little bit of a, a Latin, uh, a Spanish uh beat flavor, at least at the beginning of it. Uh, and that just makes it, perfect because she's so angry uh it's fiery you know um so anyway uh, max does a great version of that and that's our opener and our closer is in commemoration of the fact that um we recently passed on october 16th what would have been the 98th birthday of the great angela lansbury and so uh our selection for the closer is maybe Maybe her crowning moment from one of her biggest triumphs of her career. Uh, if he walked into my life from Maine. All right. So on behalf of Michael Portant here and Jenna Tessa Fox, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Did I ever turn away? Would I be there when he called If he walked into my life Today Were his days a little dull Were his nights a little wild Did I overstate my plan Did I stress the man And there must have been a million things That my heart forgot to say Would I think of one or two If he walked into my life today Should I blame the times I pampered him Or blame the times I bossed him What a shame I never really found the boy Before I lost him Were the years a little fast Was his world a little free Was there too much of a crowd, all too lush and loud, and not enough of me? Though I'll 
myself my whole life long what went wrong along the way would I make the same mistakes if he walked into my life today 